0: We're going to shift now to the message time, and that's why it's going to make more sense that David's up here with me in a minute. Uh, We're studying the book of Colossians, but it's important to remember that we may call these books of the Bible, they're actually letters. They were originally, many of them, letters written to different churches, certainly in the New Testament, the epistles from Paul. These are letters, and if you think about how the church would have received these letters, they would not have all had a copy sitting in front of them. They would not all be out there like you can and pull up a copy, or, or many of you, I can see the glow, or you know, you have this, and you can read it on your phone. No, they would have sat and listened to someone delivering the message from Paul. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, David is going to share with us from memory the passage we're going to study today, as well as some verses before and after for context. So David, would you go ahead and, I, want you, I just want, before he does this, I want you to imagine, that you are in that first century church. You are a believer in Colossae, and you are now hearing for the first time these words delivered from the Apostle Paul who is in prison by someone standing in front of the church and sharing them with you.
1: We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow.
0: Thanks, David. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, my mic's off. There we go. Hey, before you sit down... I want people to realize that, that was all done from memory, and you have actually memorized the entire letter to the Colossians, as well as the letter to, or you, the letter to Philemon, right? You've yep. memorized both of those. And um, in case people are wondering, why would you do that? Why is Bible memorization a valuable thing in your mind?
1: Um, well, I get this, there are several reasons. Um, first of all, uh, Psalms one nineteen eleven says, "I have hidden your word in my heart, so that I might not sin against you." So it protects me. Um, and you don't necessarily have to memorize it to hide it in your heart, but it certainly helps. And you can memorize it without hiding it in your heart. It needs to be, it's really a heart issue. It's not just a, a matter of you know, a mental exercise. Um, and of course, since, I'm, well, I memorized Colossians a couple decades ago. Um, and I, I've memorized other things since then Uh, hope not to become stagnant in that, but I also don't want to forget Colossians, so I have to keep reviewing it myself. Um, But I did that, when I did that, I used to drive this old car and the radio went out in it, so I couldn't listen to the radio on my way to and from work. Um, So that actually became a really good time for me to memorize and review uh, Colossians. That's when I did it, and um, if you do this i encourage you to be safe i don't think god wants us to uh have an accident just because we're memorizing scripture but um but you know at a red light you can look at a new verse and then while you're driving you can um you know work on it in your head um Does that answer it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, does, that does answer it. That's right, yeah. So uh, what advice would you give then to someone who wants to get started memorizing the Bible? I mean, I think it's an incredibly valuable thing to do. I grew up in a couple of different programs that drove me to memorize the Bible. And, you know, at the time, a lot of times it was just about the mental thing. But like you say, then, then as you learn it and as you do apply it and internalize it in your heart, there are so many situations where those verses that I learned long ago... Pop into my head and, and I'm able to remember them And dwell on them And meditate on them more Because I've memorized them So there may be people here We don't, we don't talk about this a lot in church I think we probably should a little bit more um, not, that, not that it's all about How many verses you've memorized Or things like that But it really is helpful To have them close at hand If someone wants to get more into that And wants to memorize more passages of scripture How would you um, give them advice On where to get started And how to do that well
1: Right, yeah um you know i guess for me i first thing i was always working on memorizing was salvation verses which i think is an excellent start um but i think that really the very best way is just to read the bible and i like to read a paper copy of the bible and when i get to a verse that is very meaningful to me i underline it and um and then to memorize it i would encourage you to start a log uh, of verses or passages that you want to memorize because as you're reading through the bible and um, you find these verses you're going to find that uh, you're going to have way more things you want to memorize than you can just do that day right but have them in your log in case you go through a dry spell you'll have them ready to go and you won't forget what it is you want to learn Um, then if it's a verse or a couple of verses i would write it on an index card um and the reference, I put them on the same side and then on the back side, I put some sort of question or statement that I can quiz myself with, you know? Um, so I see uh, you know, some, some question about how can we be saved and on the back side is the verse and the reference. So if, if, if you can answer the question without having to turn it over, then you're ready to go, right? Um, so you can keep some index cards. If it's a longer passage, um, uh, let me say, when you write on index cards, Write each line with a phrase instead of just the whole line because that will help you to think of it phrase by phrase. But then if it's a passage, try to do what's easy. Either print it off the internet or just make a copy of the page in your Bible um, so you can carry that with you. Um, So, and then another thing is, I think a lot of people just think they can't memorize. It's like they think it should be easy. It shouldn't be easy for most people. There are a few people, probably very few people, who really have a gift at memorizing. They can pick something up, uh, look at it for an hour, and then, and maybe it's five minutes' worth of material, and then they can spew it all out, and it'd be perfect. I'm not one of those people. It takes me a long time, lots of repetition, um, and don't expect to get it all at once. I would... You know, memorize a verse, next day I don't remember it at all memorize it again, next day I still don't remember it, do it again eventually it's going to stick and it, then one day you'll say, oh what was that verse? oh yeah, oh yeah I can say it, wonderful You know, that'll be encouraging and you'll find that the more you do it, the easier it becomes um, and if you're doing a passage you'll also find that you don't have to do one verse at a time sometimes you can sit down and do three or four or five verses and it just seems to click because it all fits together now maybe the next day you won't remember them again but try again and again it will eventually get there and then don't think that it's a once and done kind of thing with colossians i have to go back again and re you know re-memorize it it's not that it all goes away i still am familiar with it but um I have to refresh, you know, before it is. If you wait too long, maybe it will be gone. But, um, and then there's another thing. You need to give yourself a deadline and a test, right? You did that in school. It really helps you to make sure you know the material. You have to have a deadline. So set yourself a deadline just to, to learn it, first of all. And then another deadline to know it so well that you can say it to somebody else in a meaningful way, your spouse, your sibling, you know, a friend, um, a group of people, if possible. Usually, the bigger the audience, the um, the harder it is to make it right. And therefore, if you can be successful with it, then um, you know the more uh, encouragement you have to to keep going. Um, but but mainly it sets that deadline and makes you really work hard so you do it well. And and the main purpose of that isn't just to do it well, but um it's an act of worship. To tell God, Wow, your word is so important to me, I want to internalize it. I want to know it thoroughly. And um and so, you know, that glorifies God and uh that's I think great. that's you know, the main reason.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thanks, David. It's just something we don't talk about a lot in, in church, so I just thought it was worth uh, spending some time talking about the value of internalizing scripture and remembering it. Um, thanks, David, for being here and sharing with us. I'm going to go ahead and pray for our message time, and uh, then you can have a seat, and we just really appreciate you being here. So thank, you, thank
1: you, Adam, because being able to do this is very encouraging to me to keep going.
0: That's great. Awesome. All right, let's all pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and how meaningful it is to us. And the reminder um, that we need to hide it in our heart and, and that that's not just a mental exercise, but that really means we need to internalize it and we need to dwell on it and chew on it and understand it and apply it, not just on Sunday, but every single day of the week. And Lord, we pray as we dig into this letter to the Colossians today, that you would help us to glean some things out of it that would be meaningful to us, that you would speak to us through your word today, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. amen well if you're not already there colossians if you haven't figured it out is where we're going to be this morning so go ahead and open your bibles to colossians chapter two you're going to need it as we walk through our passage for today and before we dig into the letter to the colossians you know i like to often start out with some kind of an illustration or something just to to get your brains engaged and get you thinking about something so here's my question for you today all right so think about this Do you, let me ask it this way. How many of you, raise your hand, if you are in the custom of reading the terms of service? Anybody? Like, I just love reading the terms of service. Not a single hand. Good for you. (laughs) Those things are way too long, too confusing, too much legalese in them. You know, about 91% of people just say okay and don't read a single terms of service the entire year. They just don't read any of them and i would be in that camp if you're under 34 that number jumps to 30 or to 97% of people under 34 do not read terms of service and why would they they're on every website you go to the pop up comes up do you accept our terms and conditions and to read the terms of conditions you're going to have to click this link and wait 30 seconds for it to load no okay and you don't even know what you're agreeing to you could be signing away your kidney and you would have no idea because you're just okay okay i check i agree i agree What about the iTunes Terms of Service? Has anyone ever stopped to read the iTunes Terms of Service? I can't say that I have, or at least I didn't, until I came across a man by the name of Robert Sikoriak. And Robert actually read the iTunes Terms of Service, and then he turned it into a graphic novel. The entire text of the iTunes Terms of Service Turned into 108 beautiful pages of glorious graphics And I had to buy a copy of this So that I could share it with you Here's the cover of this graphic novel Terms and Conditions The Unauthorized Adaption The Graphic Novel And I want to show you a couple of the comics from this Because they're really, really good Here's the first one all sales and rentals of products are final that's it it's just literally the text of the terms of service with steve jobs snoopy if you join a family the features of family sharing are enabled on your computers and devices automatically let's go to the next one there's garfield love that got a couple more in there i think there you go dennis the menace with the stubble isn't that great And let's go to the next, there you go. And check this one out. You also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by United States law. And he just goes on and on, it's the Green Lantern. But as Steve Jobs, and there's one more, there you go, Homer Simpson, such access is provided as an accommodation only and the apple does not warrant and will not have any liability or responsibility for such album cover art or your use thereof. It's just that, the whole time. Now wouldn't that make it more interesting to read the terms and services? Wouldn't that be better? If you could just go through that in picture form, I absolutely love that, and I I hope you enjoyed that as well, but you may be wondering, how on earth does this connect to Colossians in any way at all? And you would not be crazy for wondering that. Here's the deal. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we do not understand the terms and conditions of that agreement, and that's okay. We don't need to understand everything Jesus did for us in order to trust in what he did for us, but the the fact of the matter is that a lot of us never take the time to really understand what happened there. What did that really mean? What were we really signing on to? We don't know the fine print, the terms and conditions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, last week we talked about roots and being rooted in Christ, And I said that, sadly, many Christians never develop deep roots. They stay fairly shallow. And a part of that is they don't understand what Jesus actually did for them. What did he really do in that process? One of the verses we looked at a couple weeks ago was Colossians 1.13, which says, He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So there's a transfer that's taken place from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, the kingdom of light. And that is not a simple transfer. There's a lot of stuff that happened in that process, and we kind of gloss over it and just say, believe in Jesus and you're saved, you've got eternal life, you've got a relationship with Him, and all of that stuff is true and good, but there is a lot more that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot more in the fine print, and that's actually what we're going to get into today. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we are going to see a chunk of the terms and conditions for being a follower of Jesus. And this part is really more about what is Jesus doing for us? What is he signing on to in this process and saying, I am going to do this for you? Or in in our case, for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, what has he done for us? Do you really understand what happened in that process? Now, if you're a note taker, we're gonna do this in five parts. There's gonna be a part A and B and C and D and E. And so you may wanna write these parts down as we go through it. Here's the first one part a of the terms and conditions we're going to talk about today is you get circumcised all right so don't get all excited those those of you that are that are new believers men that have maybe never had this in the past this is a part of what it means to become a follower of christ as you get circumcised and that ceremony happens after this service so we'll meet you out back and we'll just take care of it real quick there's more there's more you've got to get the rest of the verse it says when you came to christ you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure okay so whoo that's taken care of christ performed a spiritual circumcision the cutting away of your sinful nature what's happening here is paul is using a physical circumcision as a metaphor to explain what happens to us spiritually when we trust in jesus And to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about physical circumcision. Not a lot, but a little bit, okay? Physical circumcision, as most of you know, is the cutting away of a very sensitive part of the body. And it was part of the sign of the old covenant that God made with Abraham. This was a sign of the old covenant that God made with Abraham for his descendants, the Israelites god uh, made this covenant with abraham and said that uh, you will you will be my people and you will be a father of many nations and a great multitude will come from you and you will inherit the land of canaan where you currently live and this will be your possession and and also your term of this is i want you to serve and obey me and that's not a a a harsh uh, punishment or anything for them because he doesn't demand a lot of them he knows what's best for them if they serve and obey God, then things are going to go very, very well for them. And he, he tells them that over and over in the Old Testament. But part of the terms and conditions of this covenant that God made were physical circumcision. This is from Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. So physical circumcision was a sign of the covenant and their commitment to serve and obey God. It wasn't about the physical circumcision per se. It was an outward sign of an inward commitment that they were making. And this is made clear in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, He's talking about their relationship with God. Jeremiah tells the people, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So, physical circumcision was a physical sign of the old covenant, but more importantly, it was a picture of what God wanted from his people. He wanted them to remove sin, to be committed to get rid of sin and to follow him, to to cut away the sin in their lives. And so circumcision got used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for this, as well as a physical sign of their commitment to God, and Paul is going to use circumcision this way in Colossians. It's the idea of the cutting away of the sinful nature, spiritual circumcision. Paul actually plays down physical circumcision. He tells the Galatians, listen, I, Paul, tell you this, if you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit for you. So physical circumcision is not really a thing for the New Testament believer, but spiritual circumcision, the idea of the cutting away of the sinful nature, that is what Paul is talking about here. Every single one of us has a sinful nature, or is born with a sinful nature, I should say. We're born with a sinful nature. And that happens because Adam and Eve sinned, and they brought sin onto the human race, and then from that moment on, everybody's born with a sinful nature. And we have evidence of this because I never had to teach my kids how to sin. I never had to have that talk with them where I sat them down and said, now listen, guys, there are gonna be times where you're going to want to tell mommy and daddy that you didn't do something when you really did and here's how you do that I never had to have that talk with them I never had to explain to them how to be angry or how to hit each other I never had to explain how to take away toys from other kids all that stuff happened very very naturally because they naturally have this sinful nature and when we trust in Jesus he separates us from being attached to that sinful nature now this is where theologically there there comes in a little bit of debate over did Jesus just separate the sinful nature or did he eradicate the sinful nature and honestly that boils down mostly to semantics and so some of you may be familiar with those theological debates and and I want you to know that I'm, I'm aware of that we're not going to get into that today because honestly it just seems like it's it's largely semantics because the bottom line is after Jesus does this can we still sin yeah do we still have desires to sin Yeah, do we still struggle with that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it seems like Paul says that sinful nature seems to hang around a little bit. It's not something that seems to be totally done away with. In Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's great news. We are no longer slaves to sin. Our sinful selves were crucified with Christ. They are dead and gone. But then he says in verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. So it's not like when you trust in Jesus, you have this spiritual circumcision that cuts away your sinful nature and you no longer sin. You're now a perfect person. I know that's not news to any of you because all of you live with other people. And if they're Christians, you know they still sin. And so we still have this sinful desire that hangs around us, but we no longer are under control of it. We now have more control of it than it should have of us. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Sin no longer has power over you by default. You can have power over it, but he says don't let it have power over you. Before you trusted in Jesus, your sinful nature was always winning. But after you trust Jesus, he separates you from that sinful nature and now you have power over it instead of the other way around. Too many Christians feel helpless when it comes to sinful habits in their lives. Too many Christians accept this defeated mindset that it's just, oh, this is just something I'm never gonna be rid of, and I'm never gonna stop doing this, and it's just always gonna be a problem that I have. And, and it's a defeated mindset that does not recognize the fact that the Bible says Jesus Christ's death on the cross gives you power over sin. He has won the victory over this. Obviously, it's not through you. It's through what he does in you, surrendering to him. But the fact that Jesus died for us and saved us makes us free from the power of sin. And the reason we feel so powerless sometimes is because we don't understand the terms and conditions. We don't understand what Jesus really did for us. He cut away that sinful nature so sin no longer has any power over you. Ephesians chapter four says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Throw it off, he says. And then he says in verse 24, put on your new nature. Created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So, Paul is talking about the sinful nature and the new nature like they're clothes that you can put on and take off. And he's saying, throw off that old sinful nature. Put on the new nature. They're like clothes that you can put on and take off. And that's what God asks us to do. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But first, let's get to part B. This is part B of the terms of service. You get baptized. So you get circumcised and you get baptized. This is from verse 12 in Colossians 2 there. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now baptism here in this verse has some layers to it that we kind of need to unpack a little bit. The word baptism is baptizo in the Greek. And it literally means to dip or immerse. It's the word that was used in literature of that day for a ship that sank underwater. So if a ship sank underwater, it was baptizo. It was fully immersed in water. But the common usage of baptism uh, back then was not just for something that went underwater. It could also be used in a metaphorical sense. So you could say that um, something was baptized In that it was identified with something, it was baptized into Moses, for instance, is one of the phrases that gets used. And so that's not baptism by water, that means there's an identification there. Or it could be going through something, you could be baptized in the sense that you went through something. So the word baptism, or baptizo, in the Greek, should probably have been translated into a different word. And for reasons we won't get into here today, the translators hundreds of years ago when they were translating it from the Greek into English, they decided not to translate it, but to do something called transliteration. They transliterated. They took the Greek letters and they used the the English language and they made a word that basically sounded very similar to baptizo and they called it baptism and they called it a day. And said that was good enough. And the problem with that is sometimes we get this idea that baptism is this one particular type of thing when actually the word in Scripture can be used in different ways. Paul said that the Israelites were baptized into Moses by going through the Red Sea. They were baptized as followers of Moses. They now identify with Moses. They didn't actually get wet going across the Red Sea. If you remember, they crossed on dry ground. Uh, but they were baptized into Moses, Paul says. Jesus told his followers that he had a baptism of suffering ahead of him, a baptism of suffering. John the Baptist told his followers that even though he was baptizing them with water, that someone was coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, not with water. Paul says that when we join the body of Christ, that that's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that they would receive the baptism of the Spirit later. Now, they were already believers at this point. They had already been baptized in water at this point, but there would be an additional baptism baptism or immersing in the spirit that would happen and this was when they would receive spiritual power jesus says they will receive power from the spirit to be witnesses and he calls it being clothed with power from on high immersed clothed with power it's the it's that baptism that he's talking about there of the spirit In Acts chapter 10, the Gentile believers get saved and they get Holy Spirit power after that. So they trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. And then Peter says, well, they've already been saved and they've already received Holy Spirit power. So why don't we give them a water baptism too? And that's what they do they got three baptisms in one day they got baptism into the body of christ with identification they got baptism of the spirit with holy spirit power and they got baptism by water to represent all of those things so it's important that we not think of baptism as a very limited narrow word that can't be used in different ways and of course then the question is what kind of baptism is paul talking about here in this verse Is he talking about the Spirit coming on people with power? Is he talking about water baptism? Or is he talking about baptism into the body of Christ that happens when you trust in him? And there is debate about this, I'll tell you. But my view is that he's talking about baptism into the body of Christ. Because I think it lines up with the context. When he talks in the verse previously about spiritual circumcision, he's talking about a spiritual act, not a physical act. And then he's talking about baptism, a very related concept and how he describes it. And I think he's talking about a spiritual baptism into the body of Christ, not a physical water baptism. And the clues are right there in the text as well. He says that this happened because you trusted in the mighty power of God, not because you went underwater. He says that you were buried with Christ and raised with him to new life. It's all about identification. And so this, I think, is a baptism of identification or of being transferred into the body of Christ. And it's represented in water baptism. What we do in water baptism is a symbol of that. But water baptism is an outward expression of the inward commitment and change that's already happened in the same way that circumcision in the Old Testament was an outward expression of an inward commitment that was supposed to happen. So what's Paul's point in all of this? Well, if you have trusted in Jesus then you are identified with him, buried with him, raised with him in new life, baptized into his body. He died and rose again, and now you're a beneficiary of his sacrifice, and you actually go through it with him in a spiritual sense. There is a death and living that happens for you as you are a part of Christ. And it's not because you followed some kind of ritual. If you'll remember, what we've been talking about all along in Colossians is that the The people, the false teachers in Colossae were trying to tell people Jesus isn't enough and you need all this extra stuff. But he's not saying that this happened because you kept the law of Moses. He's not saying this happened because you did any kind of extra ritual or celebrated some sort of holy day or any kind of extra worship or anything like that. Why does he say it? It's simply because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Paul's trying to make it clear to the believers in Colossae that this is all about faith it's not about the extra things that you do. Not that it's wrong to do good things, but it's not the good things that are going to make you right with God. It's the trusting in the power of God. So when you trust in Jesus, you get circumcised, you get baptized, uh, Christ cuts away the sinful nature, you become identified with Jesus, and and as a part of that identification there is a death spiritually and a new life spiritually and what does that look like well that's part c you get a life part c of the terms and conditions is you get a life verse 13 says you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away it was still there it was still attached to you jesus hadn't cut you away cut that away yet and so you're dead in your sins then god made you alive with christ for he forgave all our sins with circumcision you have spiritual surgery spiritual surgery that cuts away that sinful nature separates you from the sinful nature with baptism you have identification with christ his burial and resurrection and when all of that happens you get a new life jesus called it being born again and you may remember nicodemus was like how does that work well paul is explaining how this works this is how God does it. How God gives you a new life and makes you born again, and, and starts to turn you into a new person. I remember uh, several years ago, a friend and I were trying to help an older gentleman who was not a follower of Jesus. And just to be honest with you, he was not a very nice person. He was not someone we enjoyed being around. He was he was he was, was honestly he was very critical. He was very cantankerous. Um, he was just he was the kind of guy that when he came into the office, we would be like okay, psych yourself up, let's go in there, let's talk to this guy. You know, it wasn't someone that you really wanted to hang out with, but we kept working with him and eventually he trusted in Jesus. He realized that he needed Jesus to save him from himself and from his sins and from the consequences of his sins and so he trusted in Jesus and it was like a switch had flipped on his life. He was a totally different person moving forward and I remember the first time I saw him after this happened. And I walked into the office and he was sitting in the spot where he would wait for, for me or this other guy to talk with him. And my instant reaction, just by habit, was like, okay, you know, <laughs> we're ready to, ready to go do this thing. And he's there reading his Bible. That was new. And then I started talking to him and asking him questions and he was the sweetest guy. He was just a wonderful, pleasant person after this. And I'm not saying that this is what happens to everybody as soon as they trust in Jesus, okay? Some of you know that's not true. But you do get a new life. You get new desires. There's a radical change that happens at this point. 2 Corinthians says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone A new life has begun. Now, not that it immediately makes us perfect people. It doesn't make us sinless all of a sudden. It's a process, not a point in time. That's why Romans 12 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think and so a new life has begun the Bible says but there's also this transformation process that happens over time which by the way means you should give yourself some grace God's working on you you're a work in process you should give everybody else grace God's working on them they're a work in pro- in process. This is a journey that we have to go on where God is transforming us and we're surrendering parts of our lives to him and he's making us more and more like him. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. It's what we call sanctification. This is sanctification. When we gradually throughout our lives learn and grow to be more and more like him, it's a process, not just a point in time. That's why Paul Was able to say to the believers Throw off your sinful nature You need to keep working on that And put on the new nature In fact the exact words that he uses there Are words that carry a meaning Of continual action It's not something that you do once And it's done Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great if we could just be like Throw it off and I never have to worry about sin again Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean seriously, wouldn't that be great? But that's not how it works It is a continual throwing off and a continual putting on it is a daily recognizing that we still have this capacity and propensity to sin and and seeking to get rid of that at the same time wanting to put on the new nature put it on like clothes paul says put on continually the new nature so we get a new life but we had an old life no matter how young you were when you trusted in jesus you had sins you committed what happens because of those sins What happens to the consequences that you face because of those sins? In fact, for that matter, this whole time I've been telling you we still sin after we trust in Jesus. What about those sins? Do we not face consequences for those sins? Does God not hold us accountable for those sins in some way in eternity? And here is where part D comes in. You get pardoned. You get pardoned. Verse 14 says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I think this is the most amazing metaphor that Paul uses here. Nailing it to the cross. The record of charges against you, the debts, literally what it means is an IOU. You had a record of debts against you that you owed and Jesus paid it and took it away. He nailed it to the cross. It's like you're a a career criminal who's got a rap sheet a mile long. And finally you get caught and you're standing before the judge and the judge is looking at your list of crimes and says you are a very bad person but I love you and I care about you. In fact I love you so much that I'm actually going to pay for the crimes that you have committed. I'm going to take the sentence that you deserve for these crimes. And not only that but after that I am going to adopt you into my family and I'm going to give you a better life. Can you imagine a judge ever doing that, especially for a total stranger? No, of course not, but that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the picture. He took our debts on himself, and he paid it, and then he canceled it. He canceled the record of the charges that were against us, and he nailed them to the cross. One way to think of it would be like what we did a year ago when when we as a church bought up about $1.7 million worth of medical debt for over 2,700 people in our community. And we did this like debt collectors do. We, we used a group called RIP Medical that functions as a, a debt collector type organization. And so for pennies on the dollar, you can buy up debt and debt collectors will do this and then they'll, they'll collect on the debt. you know, And they'll send letters and they'll do phone calls and, and they'll keep hassling people until they pay the debt back. Only in our case, we paid for the debt and then the debt was canceled. It was, just, it was just wiped out. It was taken care of. It was paid for and then canceled. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He paid for our debt and then he canceled the debt so it's no longer holding that over our heads. And why is this important? Well, because the false teachers in Colossae were telling the Christians that Jesus wasn't enough to be made right with God. There were extra things they needed to do. And Paul is saying, he canceled all the charges against you. There is nothing else to pay for if you trusted in him there's no other penance you have to do there's no other special things you have to do to somehow earn the forgiveness of god jesus covered it all and if you believe there's anything else that's supposed to be added to that then you don't believe jesus was enough you don't believe that he was powerful enough to pay for your penalty and then wipe the slate clean and say your debt is forgiven jesus paid it all as the song says So through trusting in Jesus, you get spiritually circumcised. Your sinful nature is cut away. You get spiritually baptized. You identify with Jesus, and you become a part of his death and his resurrection. And so you get a new life, one that allows you to grow and be more and more like Jesus and not be bound to the power of sin, and you get pardoned. Jesus takes your sin, he pays your debt, he cancels the charges against you like they were nailed to the cross with him. And as a result of all of this, part E is, you get new leadership. You get new leadership. This is from verse 15. Paul says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, we don't think about this a lot in our Western world. At least I don't think we do. The fact that there are spiritual rulers and authorities that are not so good. But Paul is saying that he disarmed, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. It's, it's military language, actually, that he's using here. Those spiritual rulers and authorities have a claim over people who are a part of the kingdom of darkness. Those who have not trusted in Jesus. This is where Paul talks about it in Ephesians. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. World. So there are powers in the unseen world that we do not see spiritual forces of darkness and Satan is their commander and there are people that are obeying the devil and his forces. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, Paul says, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. There are very real spiritual forces of evil that are at work in this world do you believe that i know sometimes it seems like where are they right what what are they doing right now i don't see any of that but that's what the bible says there are spiritual forces working in this world and influencing people and manipulating them to bring about their own goals instead of god's goals and you might rightly ask well i don't see this I mean, where's the evidence of this? All I see is bad stuff that people do. I don't see the, I don't see the spiritual forces at work in this world. So where's the evidence of this? Well, I have two answers to that question. Uh, two things to share with you if you're struggling with, okay, where are these spiritual forces? Why don't I see them? Why aren't they visible? And the first one, which is very helpful to me, comes from Ephesians chapter six. And this is the fact that Paul acknowledged that the believers in Ephesus... In the church they didn't see them either they thought it was all the work of people and what paul explained to them was you don't see it but believe it or not guys a lot of what's happening around you is actually the result of spiritual forces who are influencing and manipulating people who are allowing them to do that people who are who are in a sense being controlled by spiritual forces of the enemy and you think this is people doing this to you Uh uh-uh there are spiritual forces behind this. He says this in Ephesians six twelve. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. See, they thought the same thing. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, he says, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He really drives that point home. There are evil spiritual forces out there that are working against believers and working through other people and manipulating. And Paul goes on to talk about the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6 that we need to put on to be able to withstand these kinds of attacks. Spiritual armor. So it's not like spiritual warfare was obvious in the early church even. Paul had to remind them, hey, by the way, you think this is people. This is spiritual forces. So that's one part of my answer. That it's not like it was obvious to them and now we just don't see it today. No, Paul had to let them know what was happening that they couldn't see as well. The second part of my answer is best explained by C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. And I love this book. Uh, It is obviously fiction, but it's the fictional account of a demon talking to another demon and explaining the craft to him. And here's a passage that I think explains this better than I could. This is the senior demon to the junior demon. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of our own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. So that's a reference to Satan being the commander of these forces that we just read a minute ago. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. What he's saying there is it's a whole lot more fun when we can just make ourselves obvious and do stuff to mess with them. And that, that is very likely true. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect belief in us, though not by that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to the belief in the enemy. In other words, they're going to try to figure out a way so that that people can believe in them and maybe not understand who they are, but not believe in God. And why would they want to conceal themselves? Why would they want to stay hidden? Because, and this is, I think, very real, if they make it obvious that there are spiritual forces at work that are messing with you and messing with the people around you for for the individuals that aren't sure whether they believe in a spiritual world at all those people are going to go oh wow there clearly are spiritual forces in this world and it might drive them to the good spiritual force it might drive them to seek out God and, and be more open and interested in hearing about God and so how much better to just make people think there's no spiritual world at all there's nothing going on there's nothing behind the scenes there's nothing behind the curtain here And that way they can be materialists and skeptics. And I think probably this is very accurate. I think the spiritual rulers, the unseen rulers, are very clever. And they have learned that it's better to be discreet and hidden than to potentially drive people toward their enemy, God. In parts of the world where there is very little Christian witness, you hear lots more stories about things that are probably directly attributable to spiritual warfare and demonic activity. And the more Christian witness there is in a certain area, it seems like the less that stuff is present. And yet I think what Paul would tell us is, hey, remember, behind the scenes, this is what's happening. This is the influence. This is the manipulation that's taking place. You need to be aware of that struggle and that it's not just against people. And he says why in Ephesians 6.13. He says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then a few verses later, he says, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. This is Paul telling believers, you need to be prepared and equipped to handle spiritual warfare that's hitting you. We need to recognize that there are spiritual forces of evil that want to influence us, that want to manipulate us, that want to help us make destructive decisions against ourselves or against other people. That does not remove our blame. We are complicit in that if we allow that to happen. Remember, sin no longer has power over us. Those spiritual rulers no longer have claim over us. But they are active and working and trying to get us to do things that wouldn't make sense to us if if we were not under those influences. We have to be aware and cautious about this. In the same way, we need to be aware that other people we interact with, including believers, Paul makes this very clear, may also be influenced by the spiritual forces of the unseen world. It is very possible that when someone that you have known for a long time does something irrational and mean, and just you can't imagine them ever doing that, it is very possible, and you need to be aware of this, that they are not just operating on their own. That there is some unseen spiritual force, spiritual demon, a ruler, a principality of the air, it's sometimes called in scripture, who is influencing and manipulating. That does not take away their culpability. That does not take away their responsibility, especially if they're a Christian. They have the power to be free from that. They don't have to, to submit to that. It has no control over them. But Paul is telling us, be careful because these influences can happen and you may come across something where you say, that's just not like them. Well, how could they do this? I've known them for years. Why would they go down this pattern of sinfulness, of of destructiveness? Why would they do that? It is very possible, not necessarily in every case, that spiritual forces of the unseen world are behind that. But there's good news for followers of Jesus. In Colossians, Jesus disarmed these spiritual rulers when it comes to us He shamed them Paul says he gained a victory over them And that means that even though they can still influence us As Paul makes very clear They don't have any power or control over us We can flat out reject their temptations And choose to put on the new life And reject the influence that they have in our lives You need to understand this When there are times where you just start to feel like Man I really just want to do that sinful thing Or I'm I going to go say that to that person that may be just you and your sinful desires or that may actually be a spiritual force who is working against you and if you know that and can recognize that, you can say, I don't have to, I don't have to do that. Uh, you have no control over me. You have no power over me. I am not going to allow you to have that influence in my life. So what's the big takeaway for us today? Jesus has accomplished so much for us. When you trust in him, so much happens. We were spiritually dead in our sins. We were bound to our sinful nature. We deserve punishment, internal separation from God. And when you trust in Jesus, all of that changes. You trust in the mighty power of God, Paul says, who raised Christ from the dead and you get a new life. He takes you from death in sin to new life in Christ. But we have to constantly watch out for slipping back into those old sinful patterns. We have to daily throw off the old self like bad clothes and put on the new. We are being transformed, the Bible says. It's not a point in time, it's a process, and we have to recognize that. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? You remember the story of Lazarus, when, who Jesus raised from the dead? And Jesus came, and, and Lazarus was already dead, and he had been dead for a few days, actually. He's in the, the grave, and Jesus told him to roll away the stone, and they're like, no, Jesus, he's been in there for four days, he smells, he's been decaying, like, let's not subject ourselves to that, that's gross, He's like, do it anyway. So they roll the stone away. He says, Lazarus, come out. And to their amazement, Lazarus walks out of the grave, right? Do you remember the first thing Jesus said when Lazarus walked out of the grave? He said, take the grave clothes off. Because he was bound up in these strips of cloth that they wrapped around the body and these claws were nasty at this point. They had, been, they had been covering a decaying body for four days. And he says, take the grave clothes off of him. Now just imagine, just imagine if after these people went over there and unwrapped Lazarus and Lazarus is looking great but these claws are on the ground nasty, if he just picked up and started putting put them back on again. Can you imagine? What if Lazarus went and got a bag and he put his grave clothes in him, he stuck them in the bag and he's like, I'm just gonna carry these around with me in case I want them again i want to carry around these old grave clothes that sounds ridiculous but in a sense that's exactly what we do with our old sinful self isn't it paul says they're like clothes that you can put on and take off and we walk around with this kind of baggage with us that we won't get rid of and we won't throw off as paul says so we can put on the new and we keep kind of trying it back on or we don't give up this section of it Paul's message to us is, Jesus already separated you from this. It was attached to you before. It was attached to your body, and Jesus cut it away. That's the spiritual circumcision. You are no longer bound by those things. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live like that. Let's live in the new reality of the new life that we have in Jesus, that we are not bound by sin. We do not have to be controlled by spiritual forces of the unseen world, but we have freedom in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have done so much for us. You have rescued us, you have saved us, and we don't even always understand what it means that you saved us, that you cut away our sinful nature that you have identified us with you in baptism, that we have joined in your death and your resurrection, that spiritually our old self died and we have a new self, but this is not just a point in time, it's a process, and we're growing over time, but you've given us a new life and you've pardoned us, and you are now our leader. We are no longer under the claim or leadership of the spiritual forces that want to manipulate us for destructive purposes, but we have a new leader. Unfortunately, God, as you know, we do not always live like it. So help us, Lord. May this message be a reminder of how you want us to live. Throwing off the old, putting on the new, giving ourselves some grace because it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's a daily process of becoming more and more like you. But Lord, give us comfort in knowing that this is exactly the path that you want us on. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.